I'm Barry McGovern and this is Cross Currents, an exploration of contemporary Irish composers and their music. I just remember thinking at a certain point, maybe around the age of 10, I have to be a composer because if I'm a composer, I'll never run out of ideas. We all, as composers, we are what we grew up with, what we've listened to, what comes out of us is what has gone into us in a way. The whole climate in Ireland was deeply anti-arts. The avant-garde on the one hand and the Irish music going on on the other and the two hitting off each other. I didn't feel that it was an experimental tradition and I really thought, you know, I'm never going to fit in in Ireland. West Berlin was heady stuff for me. I was intoxicated uh, by the atmosphere. This is the way you, the arts and history unfold. You know, you go through these rapids and you come out in a broader bit and more rapids, so God knows what's ahead. It was really a sense of openness, a sense of breaking out of a narrow view of music. So you can just try and do something that will wear well over time. There will be have some mystery in it which is sewn into it in some intangible way. The voices of some of the composers we'll get to meet across this three-part series. So what shaped the sound of our century? and the birth of a generation of young composers who looked out to Europe and beyond rather than Ireland's inner story. From the late 1960s, a wave of new voices emerged, turning away from the insular nation-building era of de Valera and looking out to centres like Berlin and Cologne and the avant-garde composers Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, Maurizio Kagel and Pierre Boulez. You suddenly have the very rapid emergence of a huge amount of composers with very interesting voices, uh, very individual voices, and there is a sense that we've got a new professionalism, essentially, in composition in Ireland. That's Dr Mark Fitzgerald at the DIT Conservatory of Music and Drama. But what was new? What had changed? It was new in the sense that they were tapping into the here and now. A lot of earlier composers would have been more interested in what was happening in a previous generation. So, you know, Frederick May is obviously heavily influenced by his teacher, Vaughan Williams, not so much by his exact contemporary Benjamin Britten, for example. Brian Boydell talks in his interviews about a whole range of composers like Bartok or Prokofiev or so on as the cutting edge of modernism. But of course, they're all a lot older than he was. So they weren't as interested in their exact contemporaries? Well, it's a very interesting period indeed because I think that's the moment when everything changed in contemporary music in Ireland. Ben Dwyer is a composer himself and professor of music at Middlesex University. I think the Anglo-Irish tradition of Boydell and May had survived quite long into the 60s. And Shor Shabodley came along with his configurations and kind of opened the door to high modernism. 
that 1968 piece is a landmark piece, but it really happens in the 70s with that younger generation of composers. Um, Raymond Dean, John Buckley, Gerald Barry, Roger Doyle, Frank Corcoran, who's a little bit older, and Jane O'Leary, who was parachuted into the Irish scene from Princeton. So almost overnight, we have this sudden embracement of high modernism. But of course, Ireland being in its post-colonial state was very slow to absorb European trends. It's kind of interesting that it coincides with the late 60s social revolution as well that happened, of course, in Paris. But there was a kind of a revolutionary spirit, a social revolutionary spirit all over the world. And within Ireland, there was a limited opening up of ideas to let fresh air into a static, devil-era-ridden Ireland. And the interesting thing about these composers is that each and every one of them, while all high modernists, were also all very individual. I think this generation seems to really have grasped the whole idea of an avant-garde. You know, there was no sweetening of what they wanted to do. It was really grasping a challenge of innovation in their music, but really trying to embrace what was going on in continental Europe, I think, in terms of bringing Irish composition to a different and new level. And I think this generation really tried to push boundaries and succeeded. Yvonne Ferguson there, director of the Contemporary Music Centre, our partner in this project. But what was the environment like for composers Shorsha Bodley and John Kinsella, who were both born in the 1930s and producing landmark pieces by the 60s? John Kinsella's Two Pieces for String Orchestra was performed by the Irish Chamber Orchestra in 1965. Coming up to the late 60s, even though I, I was composing string quartets and odd pieces, I was totally engrossed in the whole computer programming thing, which was just a total revelation. It wasn't long after the actual invention of the whole idea of computing as such, and it, it was just like going into another world. The idea of actually coding in a funny kind of a way gave me a terrific discipline as a composer because what you put in, you get out, and attention to detail, and you can't be hit and miss in, in any way, you know, because you learn that the hard way by running a test on a program, and the whole thing collapses because you've done something wrong. And there's a certain element of that in composition, that when you hear something for the first time, you, you suddenly realize that that's not right, that's not quite what I meant. So the idea is to get it right before you release the score, and that was a kind of a discipline I learned. Shosha Bodley was unusual at that time, in that by the end of the 1950s, he got the chance to live in Germany for two years and studied with the Austrian composer Johann Nepomuk David. The change really came after the period I was living in Germany. I started travelling backwards and forwards to Germany and doing everything I could to find out about the avant-garde music that was being written at the time. And all the, the main proponents of that were around at the time, like Boulez, obviously, Luigi Nono and so on, and Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, of course. 
and it was from them that you picked up the most. I went ahead with that anyway for a period of works and then as often as happened to me there was a point at which I said well look everything I have done is based on irregularity of construction and you can go only so far with that because then a regular structure becomes regular so I decided one day to ask myself what would happen if I stuck in something totally irregular there and worked the composition working with something that's more regular and then something that's totally irregular? And I did that most particularly in a piece called The Narrow Road from the Deep North. Now that's really a title which I took from the Japanese poet Basho. But what I did was I composed a, a melody which was based on Irish music and surrounded it with sharply dissonant things going on. And that was the sort of the key point at which I unlocked myself to an extent out of the avant-garde of that time. And then I started to work in, in various works with this thing where you had two levels of music going on, the avant-garde on the one hand and the Irish music going on on the other. And the two hitting off each other and that producing a, a third effect. But what was Ireland like at this point of departure? Composer Frank Corcoran was born in Tipperary in 1944. The whole climate in Ireland, outside of Dublin, it was deeply anti-arts. A lot of it was poverty and a lot of it was national depression. The country was deeply depressed. I was 10 when my parents bought a big place outside the village of Borisakane. Then my mother, she had a hundred pigs and one boar and 10 sows, and I would help at feeding time. And uh, when feeding time came, I had my pig harmonic there. That's incredible mass of sound. And even then as a child of 10, 11, I felt if only somebody could help me with some kind of a recording machine that I would have been able to make great tape music out of this pig harmonic. I didn't hear my first orchestra until, oh, Maynooth, so I would have been maybe 18. I didn't hear a string quartet till maybe 1920. For many years, I tried to defend the Irish scene, also abroad then, as I went abroad. But it is a lie to say, oh, terrific that we had no past, no symphonic past. I no longer would defend that thesis at all. It was very bad that we didn't have giants of our past. And uh, two m memories I have. I heard actually an RT very early on Sunlight and Shadow by um, 
Fred May. I liked it intensely. And I also heard for string orchestra Hercules Dux Ferrarie by Sean O'Reilly. And that, I like that a lot too, although that too is, is neoclassical. I went, first of all, that way. Before I smashed that, I had to get onto a freer stuff. Sean O'Reilly had studied with Alois Fleischmann at University College Cork and explored music modernism when he went to France in the mid-1950s. His nomos number one, Hercules Dux Ferrarie for String Orchestra, is perhaps one of his most influential works and comes from this period. John Kinsella got to know him well through his older brother, the poet Thomas Kinsella. And they were bosom buddies. And he used to come up to our house and walk us down on, say, Sunday afternoons. And my father would join him and we'd go down to the local and have a, a few pints. And he'd have, have a meal with us and then Tom and himself would go off for the evening. But he used to play the piano for us at home. He knew lots of works by memory. He was into the whole idea of 12-tone, you know. Like his Nomos number one created the great hit because it was actually brought out on LP, which was like discovering a new planet around the Earth. So that created quite a stir, Nomos number one for strings, and it was played quite a lot. He was definitely a genius. He, he had that extra quality. John Kinsella later adapted his brother's poem, A Selected Life, as a tribute to Orieda, who died in 1971, when he was just 40 years old. Kinsella's piece, an ambitious choral and orchestral work, was performed by RTE in 1973, featuring tenor Frank Patterson. In this period, Kinsella was, as he says himself, exploring different techniques, including 12-tone serialism, as he began to find his own voice. I think my style is naturally expressive and kind of open and I couldn't find a route through traditional study because I found the method of teaching too inhibiting. Whereas I, I found when I looked at the dodecophonic way of composing, it liberated me and said, well, actually you can create your own language. provides other people can understand it, but you're creating a coherent syntax for your work. I saw that as a big thing. It seemed to draw a line somewhere. And no matter how good or bad it is, it can't get any bigger than that from a point of view of scoring. The year 1969 is a pivotal one for social, cultural and global change. The United States is immersed in the Vietnam War. 
The Northern Irish conflict has begun. Apollo 11 lands on the moon and popular music is exploding. The world was undergoing a revolution in the late 60s. Pop music, you know, the Beatles, the Maharishi. There was a huge opening up of musical ideas. And there was a kind of a realization that the world was beginning not to believe in the bullshit of world politics. I mean, I think Ireland was just at the beginning of a long period of change. When I arrived in Dublin in 69, thinking, now I'll be happy, finally, having yearned for the capital for so long, a lot of it was very disappointing. But I did find enrichment with um, kindred spirits like um, Raymond Dean and Derek Ball and people like that. And that was a very passionate uh, time. Gerald Barry was just 16 when the first Dublin Festival of 20th Century Music was held, promising a window on new music. What about the aim of it? Is it to familiarise people with a wide range of works of this century? Yes, it's called the Dublin Festival of 20th Century Music. So it's not specifically devoted to any one type of 20th century music. It's not purely avant-garde or purely conservative or purely 12-tone or what have, what have you. We try to cater for all the main groupings of what we understand by contemporary music. Do you not think that this sort of plethora of methods of writing music makes things a little more difficult for the, for the listener? You know? Yes, I would, think it, I would think it probably not so much done. Shorsha Bodley, defending the festival in its early days. Concerts were performed in the Examination Hall at Trinity College Dublin, as Gerald Barry remembers. Uh, those concerts were very often ecstatic events. And I think actually a lot of the music played was very poor, very grey and mediocre. But I've always liked a lot of that music, actually, because I heard it at a time when you're, you're wide open. It, it really woke people up to the fact that there was a whole uh, world of music out there that, that we weren't hearing as a rule. And you can hardly imagine the level of unsophistication in this country, there were no electronic studios, for example. Raymond Dean remembers taking part in the festival as a shy 15-year-old. You have to remember that uh, this was the very first festival of its kind in Dublin. There was huge public interest and there was extraordinary goodwill towards young composers because this was such a novel thing. And then in the midst of it, you had this very awkward, uh, shy, adolescent fellow coming out and playing this weird, austere, avant-garde music. Mm -hmm. 
it, it got me a great sympathy vote. In a way, it was a deceptive start for me because uh, everything was very well received, uh, even by people who were completely baffled by what I was doing, because there was this spirit in the air. Yeah, this is great. We have to encourage this. It was a wonderful start, but as I say, deceptive, because you expected things to continue that way, and of course they didn't. The Dublin Festival of 20th Century Music ran every two years until the mid-1980s. It was a turning point, not just in the lives of these young composers, but led to the creation of the Association of Irish Composers in 1972. Several of the people whom I met at the very adjudication for that first festival are people whom I still know and even hang out with to this day. And it also inspired us not just to leave it to this kind of ghetto of the, this festival happening every second year, but to set up an organisation of our own. We set up the Association of Young Irish Composers, AYIC, uh, and we put on concerts that kind of surfed on that wave of public interest. Again, it was heady times. The Dublin Festival of 20th Century Music was an absolute phenomenon and it had an extraordinary sense of vision to have the greatest composers and artists from around the world come and perform alongside Irish musicians and Irish composers' works. That's the Limerick-born composer, John Buckley. It was an extraordinary festival where you could walk down the street and bump into Stockhausen or Elliot Carter or Lutislavsky. We met all these composers as well. They were attending the concerts and some attended concerts where my own music was played. Uh, its demise is one of the most appalling things that has happened to the development of contemporary music in Ireland in my lifetime. It was just very passionate. Passionate is the word I would use, really. A passionate time. Gerald Barry. And of course, another thing that uh, was wonderful in Dublin at that time was the access to the RTE Orchestra, the Symphony Orchestra. Which was surprisingly accessible. And I had several outings with them. I remember when I was 20, was it? I won a prize called the Dublin Symphony Orchestra Prize. It was an amateur orchestra with a setting of a text by Beckett, uh, Lessness for soprano, alto and orchestra. And then that piece was played by the symphony orchestra. And Gerard Victory was head of music at the time, was an incredibly generous person, and gave younger composers a chance to use the orchestra. Then I had another outing with them in 1975, I think, with this another Beckett piece, all the dead voices, an excerpt from Waiting for Godot. And that was just, uh, you know, invaluable.
I heard a woman singing on the radio when I was maybe 11 or something like that. And it was an aria by Handel. And that was what set me off. And uh, then I just began. But I was very um, voracious uh, <laughs> when I realized that would be my life. It is kind of strange, actually, when you're 11 and you know what your life is going to be. So, by the early 1970s, a community of young composers has come together. Some, like John Buckley from rural Ireland, with a background in traditional music. Others, like Roger Doyle from Northside Dublin, playing drums in rock and roll bands and listening to the Beatles' Revolver album. I have no real memories of myself until I was about 14. I didn't really become Roger Doyle until I was 14 when I discovered the Beatles and Girls and Debussy and uh, music in general. Paul McCartney's use of tape loops in that 1966 John Lennon track, Tomorrow Never Knows, was influenced by him hearing Stockhausen's pioneering work like Contact It. For Doyle, it opened the door into electronic music. And I think when I heard electronic music for the first time, I thought, this is like my dreams. And this is so different from classical music. Number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine. But electronic music that I was hearing, and even Revolution Number no. 9 by the Beatles, the same sort of thing. It triggered some subconscious stuff deep inside the dream part of, of my brain. By the time Doyle is in his late teens, he is composing and visiting Paris. All of Paris was talking about the dance uh, company run by Maurice Béjar and this electronic music for it by Pierre-Henri. I went into a record shop and simply asked them could, could they play the opening track. That was one of those uh, moments where they put the needle down on the record in the, in the shop and I heard the opening uh, few moments of this thing and I thought, Jesus, this is fantastic. When I heard it, I, I, I thought, uh, how the hell did he make that sound? How did he do this? All I knew was, was that you needed ta a tape recorder or two And uh, like a very innocent uh, child, uh, an ignorant child, but, but a child who wanted to find out, I saved up and, and bought a tape recorder and a cheap mic. I mean, that's it, a tape recorder and a microphone. And started messing around at home and did some early pieces. And, and they're pretty good. <laughs> the very early ones. It's true music and is never your own Made me rejoice. 
Well, there's one called uh, Obstinato, which is a tape loop. I, I made a loop and stuck two bits of tape together and connected it to the radio, a channel at a time. On the right uh, channel, I got a bit of, of a radio play from Radio 4, and on the left channel, I got a bit of a concert from Radio 3, and I recorded them separately on this loop. And until I played the two of them back together, and you wouldn't believe uh, this piece came out, and the two things fitted beautifully. It looks as though my brain was tuned to pay attention to, to sound from the word go. If they open up my head, they'll just find a big music system, I think. So, in the early 70s, while Roger Doyle was creating music concrete pieces like Obstinato, Raymond Dean was writing large orchestral works like Sphinxes. Doyle and Dean were, like Gerald Barry, innovating and looking out, but each took their own path. We hated each other's music mostly, and we kind of scoffed and sneered at each other non-stop, but we put on each other's music, we performed each other's music. And Gerald used to say dreadful things about the dead end that was technology and music. So <laughs> the camaraderie was more a sort of we're in the same boat socially, but musically we didn't agree on much, I guess. Yes, I remember probably hating those things, yeah, and laughing at them or something. But I, I might think differently now, you see. I mean, when you're at that age, you often don't know what you're listening to. And I loved all those early piano pieces by Raymond, uh, the Orphic pieces. I thought they were wonderful. But some, like Frank Corcoran, ploughed their own field and kept out of the Dublin scene. I was older than these uh, few younger people, and I suppose I also wanted my loneliness. I thought I would do my best work alone, and I did not want any influences at all from uh, contemporaries. I mean, I wanted influences from the great masters, let's say, a generation earlier, the great classics of 20th century music. I wanted to put my head down and uh, explore what was in me. And after every successful work, I got a new impetus, a new kick for the next work, which had to be, of course, quite different. In 1972, a young American composer, Jane O'Leary, moved to Galway, keen to explore the Irish new music world. She was a Vassar College graduate with a PhD from Princeton in composition, where she studied with Milton Babbitt. 
I met an Irishman over in Princeton and Pat O'Leary and we were married in 71. Well, I tell you, it was really a, a jump into the unknown. I didn't know anything about Ireland. It was a bit of a shock. <laughs> Lots of things struck me on moving here, I suppose. The first of which was that everybody was Irish. <laughs> and I, I have especially fond memory of a, a letter I got back from Charles Acton. In my innocence, I had written to him the music critic of the Irish Times. And so I had written a very nice letter, I thought, inquiring, could he give me some advice, finding out who was who and what was what. And the letter came back, well, you Americans are always trying to take over and you'll just have to live here for a few years and see how we do things. So I thought, well, I'm not going to sit around for a few years doing nothing. So eventually I found other young composers. I guess that was how I got started. Within a few years, Jane O'Leary had moved to Dublin. She was composing, gathering a network of like-minded artists together and beginning to make a difference. This festival of 20th century music was an amazing thing, but it didn't happen even every year. It was, I think, every two years. And I just said, well, what happens now? Will we wait two years for the next festival? I said, we can't do that. We've got to bring contemporary music through on a continuous basis. And that is the reason that we got Concord started. So, in 1976, just four years after she arrived, Jane O'Leary founded Concord with the aim of promoting and advancing contemporary music in Ireland. I started by bringing the music of my professors and Milton Babbitt featured and Peter Westergaard in the first concert we gave in September 1976. And, of course, none of these works had been played in Ireland before. And I remember when I was back visiting Princeton, they all said, oh, I think we're having more performances in Ireland than we are in America. (laughs) But I had a piece performed in the festival in 1976 and it was a choral work called Begin and the text Begin is a wonderful poem very well known poem by Brendan Kennelly and that was a a great start for me I'd say that people found them difficult they were certainly different from the other Irish pieces that were being premiered and performed around at that time. I think probably misunderstood would be a good way of describing them. There was a bit of antagonism in the music world towards 12-tone music, and there was a complete misapprehension of what it was. Much of what was being written at the time was kind of pseudo traditional tunes. So 
my feeling was that while people respected what I was doing and recognized that I was competent, that was a word often used in reviews, <laughs> they didn't particularly like it and they certainly didn't understand it. I suppose I was conscious of people thinking of me as an outsider. I still am actually conscious of people thinking of me as an outsider or a blow-in, even after 40-odd years. Well, I don't think of myself that way. No. I feel totally Irish. This is where my whole adult life has been. But yeah, every now and then I, I do be quite conscious that... I'm considered the American. <laughs> So while contemporary European influences were flowing into Ireland, Jane O'Leary brought in the American school, composers like Milton Babbitt, Edward Cohen, and Peter Westergaard. Donacha Dennehy, born in Dublin just six years before the creation of Concord, would later complete that circle when he joined the music faculty at Princeton University in 2014. But in Dennehy's view, it was America and American culture itself that attracted him to study there, and the minimalist music of Steve Reich. The American thing was something that I discovered on my own. There was no one pushing me, and I loved it. It was a kind of addictive thing. Although as a teenager, I was more interested in European culture. I think like France, I thought of this epicenter of culture. And as time went on, I became more and more fascinated with this New York culture. There was a vibrancy to it. Like when I first heard music for 18 musicians, I thought, this is so fresh. And it sounds of our time, and yet it has such rigor. And I love the kind of visceral thing that you could both construe it intellectually and feel it. And the epic quality of it, which I associated romantically with the epic quality of, of America. Reich's Music for 18 Musicians, a groundbreaking piece based on a cycle of 11 chords, was premiered in 1976 in New York and it created ripples across global music. David Bowie named it as a significant influence on his work. For Raymond Dean and for many of his generation, one figure dominated. Karl-Heinz Stockhausen. I remember going to London to visit a cousin of mine in 1967 and just buying Stockhausen records and buying issues of the magazine Die Reihe. Uh, and somehow or other Stockhausen had struck a chord with me from a very early stage. For Dean, Stockhausen was an idol, someone to emulate in every way. 
Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I was really disgusted that I had blue eyes and he had brown eyes, you know. Like, if I could have changed the colour of my eyes, I would have done so. I mean, this is so childish, so adolescent, really. I, I noticed that he split his hair, combed his hair from the, the right, whereas I went from the left. So I kind of did the same then, even though it didn't work at all. My hair didn't want to be that way, but because Stock has made his hair that way. And I wore white shirts and white jeans that were always very grubby, unlike his, because that was the way he used to dress. It was, it was really pop star veneration. That's Stockhausen's quadraphonic and electronic work, Hymnen, written in the late 1960s. Hymnen provided an inspiration to Roger Doyle, who was studying at the Institute of Sonology at Utrecht in the Netherlands. There wasn't a sense of following on from any Irish uh, precedents. Uh, certainly for me, it was more Stockhausen. He was my model. In fact, when I studied in Holland, it was the exact same technology I was studying that Stockhausen was using in his piece called Hymnen. So I was able to make some of the transformations that Stockhausen was making in, in his work, which I admired so much. So you're bound to hear some influences of Stockhausen in my, those early pieces of mine, Thalia, for instance. So if anything, I was emulating him and moving on f from him. In the mid-70s, both Dean and Gerald Barry moved to Germany to study. Barry initially went to Berlin, to Stockhausen, before joining Maurizio Kagel in Cologne. That was 75, so I was 23. I suppose the main thing that you got from Stockhausen was a sense of architecture. He was like a great architect in music. And even if you didn't pay too much attention to his techniques, which I didn't really, you uh, simply absorbed a sense of what structure meant by simply being around him. And that was an incredibly important thing. Raymond Dean did it the other way around. That's right. I was initially accepted by Cargill, who at the time was Gerald Barry's uh, teacher, and uh, Gerald recommended him strongly. Uh, and I actually had one session with Kagel uh, in his house and it entailed drawing a kind of parallelogram and putting a little stick man in that parallelogram and seeing how many different positions you could put that stick man in and I, I didn't quite see the point of it. And I remember going home that evening a little bit bothered and I think it was that very same evening there was a knock on my door and a man called Christian Petrescu uh, was there, who it turns out was Stockhausen's assistant at the time, and he had heard that there was a new boy in town, uh, uh, and he had been sent fishing. Would I like to study with Stockhausen instead of Kagel? But um, is that possible? And he said, oh yeah, well, I'd have to look at some of your scores. Stockhausen didn't have to look at them, he had to. 
So I pulled out a few manuscripts and Christian flipped through them and said, yeah, yeah, it's good. I'd like to study with him. And I said, yeah, okay, yeah, right. So suddenly I was a Stockhausen pupil without having intended to be. And then I had to break the news to Kagel, who, who never spoke to me again. He took it very, very... Uh, these people all hated each other. I would probably have been better off staying with Kagel because uh, Kagel was actually interested in what his pupils did and he was interested in doing things for his pupils. Stockhausen hadn't the, the remotest interest in what you were doing. I was one year with Stockhausen and Stockhausen was very distant and Kagel was the opposite. He was very warm and forthcoming. Also incredibly correct, even though he was warm, he was obsessed with doing things properly and propriety in many ways. An example of that would be, I would go to his house for my lessons and often they were on a Saturday and the supermarkets in Cologne closed in the middle of the day and I knew uh, and they wouldn't open until Monday then so I used to go to the supermarket to shop on the way to my lesson and so I would I would turn up at Cargill's house with these supermarket plastic bags full of potatoes and things like that and I did this for some time and then one day Cargill exploded and he said i can no longer bear you turning up with all of this food you know rolling out of these bags you have to get a briefcase so he forced me to buy a briefcase there was something very comical about cargo it is during this period that gerald barry wrote his work things that gained by being painted I'm not sure that they influenced me very much, actually, either of them. From Stockhausen, you got a sense of architecture. From, from Cargill, you got a sense of fantasy, uh, fun, uh, to loosen up a bit. You know, he was professor of music theatre at the, the high school in Cologne. Well, you see, the thing is, uh, <laughs> going somewhere won't make you into anything. I mean, you either are something or you're not from the beginning. So you can go to Vienna or to New York or L.A. and you could still be a bore. You know, just because you go to Stockhausen or to Morton Feldman or someone in America won't make you, you know. So uh, you are what you are in yourself. And uh, these things are things which simply... Uh, open windows into other imaginative worlds. For Raymond Dean, that time in Germany is a lost opportunity. He found Stockhausen indifferent to students, and, as he says himself, he partied more than he worked. So uh, when I was in Berlin, I definitely didn't associate much with other musicians. And of course, yeah, you look back and you think, well, I, I did have extraordinary opportunities. And I let them all go. And I hung out with rock musicians in a local bar that stayed open till three or four in the morning. And I much preferred at that point being in that kind of scene than, than hanging out with the people whose interest in their own musical careers struck me as being really obsessive. Now, that, of course, is nonsense. That was just my particular 
justification to myself for the fact that I had ceased to take any interest in my musical career. I was probably set down that course from before I left Ireland. And to be in Berlin, of all places, is probably the worst place I could, could have been because at the time it was this island cut off from Western Europe and there was really a very claustrophobic atmosphere there. And the pubs were open more or less all the time and drink was cheap. Dean stopped composing in Berlin, saying he felt he had lost his direction. Yeah, I did. I, I did. I felt that I was losing some kind of ballast, and I certainly was in my private life anyway. <laughs> so it was a difficult period in, in, in a lot of ways. I had the sense that I completely lost everything and that I was just going to give up composition. When he looks back, it's his earlier work, Embers, written while he was at college, that still shines. I wrote the piece and I didn't think much of it, actually, at the time. And it took me some years to uh, appreciate just what I had done in that piece. And I still consider it, 45 years later, as uh, one of the best pieces I've ever written. It seems to me now a piece that, that embodies, in a nutshell, just about every single element that I've expanded upon in later works. Now, Embers is largely static in that, that musical elements are juxtaposed and there are long silences. But at a certain point in the piece, these different elements begin to rub together. They begin to generate friction. And the entire musical argument briefly changes. It becomes a different piece. And there is actually a climax Climaxes are forbidden in most contemporary music. And then once that point has been reached in the piece, uh, it subsides and the, the end of the piece is a kind of dismantling of the entire uh, musical argument. And uh, that, that particular way of putting music together has remained characteristic of everything I've, I've done since. By the early 1980s, both Dean and Barry were back in Ireland, economically, it was hungry times. When I came back from Cologne in 1981, I had no money. And I was staying in Promison Road in Gary Fitzgerald's basement. And his daughter, Mary, and her husband, Vincent Dean, were living there, and I went to stay with them. And so one day, Vincent and I sat down, and we looked up the Arts Council sheet for commissions to see what was the most money you got for whatever and we saw that you got most money for an opera and that's why we wrote it because there was more money for that than anything else. The opera that Barry began writing became The Intelligence Park with a libretto by Vincent Dean. Today it is judged as one of the most innovative pieces of contemporary opera coming from Ireland and Barry is internationally acclaimed for his opera compositions. His opera, The Importance of Being Earnest, was first performed by the Los Angeles Philharmonic in 2011. 
Opera is a fiendishly complicated thing to be involved in because it's expensive and you fall foul of powers that be who have the wherewithal to put things on or not. And of course, the fear of failure at the box office, all of that plays a part, I'm afraid. And I don't often pay sufficient attention to that kind of thing. I have done things, for instance, which are not heard at all, but I know they will never go away. Uh, I, I sometimes wish that I had been, about certain things, more pragmatic. But that's fine, because the main thing is the passion. After Berlin, Raymond Dean struggled to find his musical voice again. So I spent a lot of time living with my parents and leading a very quiet life indeed, and composing, and reading, and writing. I mean, I, I produced, I think, some pretty uh, amazing pieces during that period, like the orchestral piece on Chenemont, which I wrote, I think, in 1981. So the piece for, for huge orchestra, it's about 20 minutes long. It's a very disciplined piece. So you had this extraordinarily undisciplined person who just a year or two before then had more or less decided to give up composing, writing this lavish, carefully structured, uh, and at certain points, completely wild orchestral piece. And there, there, there's an extraordinary contradiction there. Roger Doyle came back to Ireland after two experimental sound scholarships in Europe, in the Netherlands and Finland, to try and shape a life in electronic composition. I came back to an island where there was absolutely nothing for me. And uh, for a year after I got back, I went on the dole and did no composing. So a full year went by where I did no composing whatsoever. And I was married then and I became a father then. So it was only slowly that I was able to uh, start composing again. I had just one tape recorder and an editing block and, and a razor blade to make the splices on the tape. That, that's all I had. So I actually spent six months splicing with lengths of tape around my neck. And that piece became Rapid Eye Movements, which is one of my major pieces. You hear stuff 10 minutes later, uh, reappearing that you've heard previously. It's full of that. But you must talk all the time. But you must talk all the time. But you must talk all the time. It's a structural device which works like magic, I think. And uh, after Rapid Eye Movements, which was my biggest, uh, my most intense and most complicated piece that I'd ever composed, 30 minutes, uh, I moved towards pop music. It was the French who brought Roger Doyle back into being an electroacoustic composer. I had entered Rapid Eye Movements for a competition in France in Bourges, the electroacoustic music competition. But that was 1981. And in 1989, out of the blue, they commissioned me to write a piece to celebrate the bicentenary of the French Revolution. One of the people in Bourges had remembered rapid eye movements and thought, we're commissioning 32 composers from around the world. Let's do this guy Doyle from Ireland. And there are messages from my parents 
on my phone answering machine saying, we got this parcel from France. Congratulations, they've commissioned you to do this piece. This is your father here, Roger. What a And I've actually worked that into a piece, that phone message from my parents. So maybe you give us a ring and let us know what you want done. I've made a, a record just recently of selected phone messages from the 1980s from my answering machine from those days. Roger Doyle's piece, Shalom Memento Mori, closing our first episode of Cross Currents. In our second programme, we hear from the next wave of composers, including Jennifer Walsh, Donica Dennehy, Linda Buckley and Garrett Scholdice, while Frank Corcoran describes the influence of the Polish composer Witold Lutosławski and why he rejected Stockhausen. I certainly did not feel at all pulled to the Stockhausen ethic. I, I saw that again as disguised fascism. High intolerance. I'm Barry McGovern. Join me then. <laughs>